like usually when people do stuff like this, they have a countdown, but we don't have a countdown. I could do it. No, I like the awkward awkwardness. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. <laughs> I live in my awkwardness. Yeah. I mean, you know. I'm he really leans it, right? into the awkwardness. I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, well, yeah, let's just, let's just start it up. You ready? Three, two. Welcome, everyone. That was really terrible. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening and subscribing to Behind the Screen. I am your host, JT Kane. I'm here with Matt Corey, uh, and we're here to talk about auditions, as you know, um, specifically orchestral auditions, which take place behind the screen, hence our name, Behind the Screen. Uh, but we hope that our discussions and our guests will be a resource and an inspiration to anyone who is currently taking auditions or uh, really just interested in the audition process. Hey, that was a nice intro, JT. You think so? Yeah. I'm working on it. I, I actually, yeah. I don't think I should edit out that false start, though. You think we leave that in? Or should I chop it? Yeah, I mean, you you, you haven't edited anything that I've said <laughs> horribly so far, so why start now? <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, do you really want to set a precedent here, Matt? <laughs> okay. I see what, I see what's going on here. I feel attacked. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's great. I love it. I think it. I think it. It. It, or it endears us to our our, our listeners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, I'm gonna. You know what? I'm gonna wait. I had a question for our guest, but I'm gonna wait until we actually start, so we can introduce him first. Ooh. But it's more of a banter nice. question than like a you know incisive question. Okay. All right. Wow. I'm passing, but I will circle back to it. Yeah. This this better be really good. It's, because it's not that good, but you'll you'll actually. <laughs> I think you'll be interested too because it affects you. Okay, got it. All right, I like I'm it. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, me too. Scared. Me this too. This podcast yeah. is brought to you by Insight for the Blind, a very special recording studio based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where over 100 volunteers produce talking books and magazines for the blind and physically handicapped, so that all may read. See for yourself at insightfortheblind.org. Yes, thank you to Insight for the Blind. Thank you, Matt, for being their courageous leader, um, and thank you for listening everybody because you are in for a really great treat today we have alex carr the, the uh, concert master of dallas symphony with us alex thank you so much for being here and taking the time out of your incredibly busy day which i know you <laughs> there's not much time in your day i've seen it oh thanks yeah man it's a pretty busy schedule but you know what for you jt always well, see that's this is why you're on the show just for that <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, man, this is, yeah, this is great. Look, everybody, uh, if you don't know Alex, you got to check him out. Um, go to his his website, alexcar.com, right? Yep. Go check him out. Walk me through this. So, I, I, I mean, I was re- I was reading your, your bio, and, and you graduated from Curtis in like mm-hmm. in, in 1992. 1992. Mm-hmm. And then you were concertmaster of, of Charleston for a while. Charleston Symphony in South Carolina yeah. for two years. Then you went to Concertgebouw. I was in Cincinnati for two years, uh, right after Charleston. Oh, so my I was gosh. the concertmaster of Cincinnati, yeah, for two years, and then I went from Cincinnati to Concertgebouw. What I want to kind of focus on is is one thing is just the the just the audition kind of between in the United States and in Europe, 
Like, and, and also what's it like to be taking a concert master audition? Because it's gotta be different than taking a normal audition. So talk to me a little bit about like your audition for Concerca Bow and how did, how did that happen? Was it an invite? What was the process? Basically what happened was, uh, they had already had three or four different auditions and they hadn't hired anyone. And so what happened was they called, uh, asked uh, the Curtis Institute if they had any recent graduates or graduates that had recently won concertmaster positions that had the, as Shai would say, the Philadelphia Orchestra sound. Real quick, who, who's Shai? Ricardo Shai was my music director I in okay. Amsterdam for the first eight years that I was there before right. Maris Janssen's. And so Shai asked Curtis if they could recommend anyone uh, for the job and they recommended me and um, and actually one of my best friends and so we all, I mean, a bunch of us auditioned. I mean, mm-hmm. there were actually, I would say at the audition, the last audition, there were probably eight of us, I think. And um, and it was uh, it was pretty crazy because all of us were at the same hotel. And we could <laughs> hear each other practicing. That's got to be awkward, We yeah. went to breakfast. Oh, it was really awkward. Yeah. We were all at breakfast at the same time. We all know who each other are. Sure. And it was, a, it was a really awkward thing. But um, and we I played and it was really funny. I just, I felt... I felt great. I walked into the hall and I thought, I'm in the concertbell. Yeah. I'm here. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna lay it all out. Yeah. And and no matter what happens, I'm just gonna lay it all out and and give it everything I have. And if I lose, I lose. But I, I just thought, you know, I'm just gonna I'm not gonna go gently into that good night. I'm just gonna really <laughs> just give everything I have. And and I was okay with losing. The whole thought was, I mean, I was only twenty five at the time. So I thought to myself, you know, if I lose, okay, it's fine. I mean, there are so many people here that are such amazing violinists. I, I, I'm, there's no shame in this, but I won. So I was, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a great day. Well, so was it was just, was it just one day? Just you, you up there? Yeah. Because I've been, t- I've been told from a number of people that the auditions in Europe are, are run a lot differently. Like you, there are times where you're actually playing with the orchestra or you have accompaniment or something like that. Well, I mean, what I did, it was pretty straightforward. I walked on stage. Um, they gave, I mean, they told me the night before the things that I was going to play off of the list. Mm-hmm. I walked on stage. I put my music on the stand. The stand fell down, uh, <laughs> which was really fun. Um, and I thought, okay, it can't get any worse than this. Yeah. I, I went through uh, first movement of Mozart's G major concerto, went through the first movement of Brahms concerto, and then went through the list, which was a, basically mostly orchestral solos and mm-hmm. a few orchestral excerpts and the whole audition lasted about probably about 45 minutes to an hour wow well that's a long time and, and yeah it was a long time to be on stage and i went downstairs and i i felt you know what i'm proud of myself yeah. I, I i did what i did i set out to do and i'll never forget there was a violinist uh from switzerland who's now in the berlin philharmonic named christoph Streuli, and christoph walked by my dressing room and he looked in and he's and he and he just and he gave me the thumbs up, <laughs> which is the sweetest thing. I, yeah. I mean, and I thought, okay, I did pretty well. Now I'll just wait for the verdict. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah. So, but I'm assuming that you're you're on stage. Everyone can see you. Who's listening to you? Um. So luckily, I'd never actually seen Shai, so I didn't know what he looked like. <laughs> so I mean, I'd of course heard of him, but I'd never actually seen his face. Yeah. So I uh, on stage were about 45 people, and in the hall were a lot of other people from the orchestra, but there were about 40 people that were judging. Okay. And including both concertmasters, uh, Shai, all the principals of each section of the orchestra. 
So all of the string principles and all the wind principles and all the brass principles. Yeah. So everybody was represented. And then there were people in the hall that were listening just to, to be there. Now, when you were there after you, after you won, did you listen to auditions when you were there for, for people coming in? There was always a concert master on every single set of auditions, Wow. whether it was percussion strings, didn't yeah. matter. There was always a string principal and there was always a, one of the concert masters was, was always on the committee. So I've, Listen to everything from percussion audition, timpani auditions, all the way up, any other type of instrument. All right, so so let's put a pin in that. I hate that phrase, by the way. Let's put a pin in it, but I, I do want to put it. <laughs> I understand now what it means. Let's shift a little bit. So now now you're going to take your Dallas Symphony audition. Remind me again. When did you leave Concertgebouw? I left Concertgebouw in nine, uh, 2005, 2006. Okay, and then so and then you went to Indiana, uh, Jacob School. So I'm going to Indiana and I'm, you know, primarily I'm teaching. I'm mm-hmm. being dad to a little boy who's just one year old. Yeah. Um, and a little one who's on the way. Right. Uh, I start at that point playing piano quartets with Menachem Pressler and start doing that a bit. Nice. And at the same time, Indianapolis Symphony uh, approached me and said, you know, Zach DePew, who was concertmaster at the time, was was touring a lot with Time for Three, Time for and they three, yeah. wanted to know if I would if I would be interested in in having a, a position where I would come in and fill in for Zach when he wasn't around. And I said sure. And so they created this position called guest principal guest concertmaster, which I thought was the funniest title of all time. Because <laughs> I thought, wow, that is like the weirdest thing ever, and like I feel awkward, but okay. And and it was really fun. I loved working with the orchestra. So I it had the best of every world. I'm playing chair music with Menachem Pressler. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching at Indiana University, one of the greatest music schools in the United States. And I'm still concertmaster of a really great orchestra. Right. So I thought, how can it be any better than this? Yeah. And uh, and then at that point, I was approached by the Dallas Symphony to come and just guest lead for a couple of weeks. And I and I said sure. So I came down and guest led. And a couple of about probably about a month or two later, I got a call from Japan Zveda, who was the mm-hmm. music director at the time. And it was really funny because everybody always said that, you know, they always thought that Yap and I were very close in Amsterdam, which actually wasn't the case. We'd only met a few times. Yeah. And Yap called me, and I'll never forget, I was in my bedroom with and now my ex-wife, and my wife and I were talking, and and, and she said, who's on the phone? And I covered the phone, and I said, it's Yap von Zveda. <laughs> and she said, why? And I said, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Give me a minute and, and I'll so, find out. <laughs> yeah. And so we talked for a while and he said that the orchestra had really enjoyed playing with me. And if I would consider coming down and being concertmaster and, and he said that, you know, there was some, uh, there was a, a wonderful violinist who had, had done very well at the audition and that he was wondering if they could, we could combine mm-hmm. our, our, my, my life and his life and put us together and, and create a sort of a joint concertmastership. And I said, well, as long as he's up for it, I'm up for it too. Right. And so we, Nathan and I have been working together ever since. I can, I'm lucky to say I have the best stand partner in the world. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure he would, he would agree with that statement for you as well. When I was in, in, in New Orleans, we had a similar situation. We didn't have a, we didn't have a concertmaster for years, for years. It was, yeah. it was, and, and actually I still don't think that they, they actually have one. So they invite people to come in and sit a friend of ours, Espen Little Slotten, is is one of those yeah, those course. yeah one of those um those people that come in and, and guest and I used to invite him all the time. He was he was great. He was up in in Baton Rouge, so it was really convenient, right? But it's yeah. one of those things where you go and and you sit there and you kind of establish a relationship with the orchestra, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. But what does it take to be a concertmaster? Is there a difference 
from being a concert master to being a section player? Like, is there a, like a personality difference or a trait that you need to have? Or, I mean, what do you think? Well, I think a concert master, first and foremost, has to be somebody that everyone can respect violinistically. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the violinistic talent to do what you do at a very high level consistently, no one's going to really respect what you have to say. So I think that's first and foremost, you have to be able to put up or shut up. Yeah. Also, a concert master has to be somebody who can galvanize people, who, who people want to follow. Yeah. I think that that's, so you have to have people skills. I mean, you have to be able to lead people in a way that they want to be led by you, that they actually want to play for you Yeah. and they trust you and that they, they, they feel, okay, this is our leader and, and we, we want to believe in this person. So I think they have to have really good people skills. I think you have to have uh, uh, chops. And I think also you have to be somebody who has, I would say good diplomatic skills as well, not just mm -hmm. for leading a group, but also for dealing with different personalities. I mean, you're dealing with each other's, you're dealing with your own section, with all the sections of the orchestra, right. you're dealing with the conductor, mm -hmm. you're dealing with the management, you're dealing with donors. Right. You're always in situations that you're that you're placed upon in that you have to be able to fit in and and feel comfortable. It's not just leading leading your section, it's leading the orchestra. You're working with so many, you're working, you know, principal oboe and and the, you know, the the percussionist, you know, just to make sure Everything is on the same page. Does a concertmaster need to be a soloist? No, no. But you have to play like one. Mm -hmm. You have to be. You have to play near the level. Near. I would say, look, I'm not James Ennis. I'm not. But I have played as. I can play as a soloist. I have played as a soloist. Mm -hmm. I played as a soloist as a child. But I'm not James Ennis. And it takes a certain personality to be able to do that. Yeah. To be a soloist, I think you have to have a certain. There's a certain. I mean, I hate to say it, like the cliche je ne sais quoi, right. but yeah, there's well, a, there's a yeah. certain essence that it, it's a different breed. It's a different animal. And I'm not that animal. I enjoy playing solo to a certain extent when I do it. I love playing yeah. chamber music, but I love right. being around people. And I found the perfect job. I mean, yeah. me being in front of people, leading people, that's me. It's perfect for me. It's it's It, it encompasses everything I do well. It encompasses me mm. Uh, being somebody who loves to be around people, it, it it involves me. I love leading people. I love being able to teach. I love all all these facets of my personality. I found the perfect job for me, and I mean that's why I love it so much. For being a concert master, obviously you have those skills. But when you were rattling off those skills, it seemed to me like only one of those would really be covered in an audition. Absolutely. So. What kind of measures did the committees take, or is probably even a different committee that interviews and auditions a concert master? Is a lot of it, you think, reputation based? Some of it's reputation based. I think you don't get invited to a lot of these auditions unless they've had a good idea of who you are. But at the same time, I think a lot of what happens with concert master is, is the tenure year, is your trial weeks or, or your tenure year. I mean, that's where you really show who you are and, and what kind of person you are. And I think that, that, you know, I think I actually like as part of auditions, I enjoy trial weeks when I audition people in my section, I think trial weeks are fantastic. They tell you so much of what you need to know. The audition tells you what kind of violinistic talent these people have, mm -hmm. but a trial week actually tells you what kind of people, how they actually fit into your group, how they live with you as a family, as a player, as a musician, you know, it's, it's it's different than just being able to play. You can be able to play and just not play well in the sandbox with others. 
it's two different things. Do you feel like, let's say you have a limited amount of time in a trial, so maybe one week or two weeks or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sitting now in front of a group of musicians that you're mostly unfamiliar with, uh, say the Dallas Symphony when you first arrived there. Is there some? Is there a sort of pressure to turn around and address the violins in that first rehearsal to kind of show them, hey, I'm listening to you? Like, I always wonder about that. Any, anytime I'm sitting in an orchestra and there's a, a, a new concert master and they immediately assert themselves, I always wonder, like, if the strings are okay with that or, you know, or if they are just doing that to try to establish the fact that, hey, look, I will turn around and say something. Well, it's funny because, like, whenever I guest lead orchestras, at my age, I'm 50 now, and so I've I've gone through this, I, I've done this dance a few times. <laughs> so it's, I'm actually pretty relaxed. I've got a sort of a system. I, first rehearsal, I usually just get the lay of the land. I mean, first, if I know this orchestra well, I might say things. I might change bowings, do stuff like that. But I'm just getting the lay of land with a new orchestra. I'm just trying to figure out what's the timing, how do the winds play, where do I play in relationship to the winds, trying to get the relationship to the conductor's beat, just trying to feel things out. The second rehearsal, then I'll start to have an, uh, an influence on things. I don't talk a lot during the dress. I never change bowings during dress rehearsals. Obviously, that's a big no-no. Ooh, yeah, no. In that first rehearsal, I try to get to know my section. Wherever I am, whether it's in, I mean, I've guest led the Pittsburgh Symphony or I've less guest led Houston. I'll, I'll talk when I need to talk. These mm-hmm. are really great professionals. They're great violinists. They're, and they've been playing in an orchestra as long as I have. So many of them are really experienced and they know their thing. I will tell them things where I think they need to know, where I think maybe they don't notice it or as a group, they're kind of prone to doing these sorts of things. And I have to bring it to their attention. If I feel like I need to bring it to their attention, I will. If I don't think so, I won't. I think you have to be very careful when you're first starting out as a concertmaster, especially with a new orchestra, when you're just starting with a new orchestra. You have to get people to respect you first before you can lead. Absolutely. Don't try to put your imprint on people and just hammer down on them. No. Your job at first, get to know who these people. Get to know what they are who they are personally and professionally. What are their tendencies? Do they have tendencies to rush, to slow down? Are they big phrasers? Are they over phrasers? Are they under phrasing? Do they follow the conductor not enough? Do they follow the conductor too much? What is their relationship to the conductor's beat? Are they way behind? Are they on the, on the front side? Hmm. What is it that they do? What is the natural tendencies of the orchestra? Once you know that, and that takes a little while. Yeah. Once you know that, then you can start having an imprint. Then you can start putting your personality in. Then you can start saying things. And what I've I've been very lucky to make most of the right decisions at the right time. I've been lucky to have the kind of personality that does that for the most part. I've made mistakes too. And it's an intuition though that you have, right? Yeah. When you first go into an organization, you sit down at a meeting you're not going to try and tell them how they're doing their job because you have no idea how they're doing their job. So you have to wait and listen and right. And just kind of understand what it is that these people are doing, because obviously they're all there for a reason. They know what they're doing. You're there to kind of support that. And then, and then you establish yourself and and you, and you help them kind of, we, now we all grow together. We build and, you know, well, we've all experienced it with conductors too, right? When a conductor comes in for the first time and within the second phrase of the symphony, they're already kind of browbeating people like that, that immediately turns you off. So I I imagine it's similar if you were 
turning around to your section right away without even barely listening to them, obviously that's going to, you know, people are going to perk up a little bit and be like, hey, settle down. Well, it's also, it's annoying. I mean, you know, it's, and it's, it's, if, if you think about like, I, I just think about like, I always thought to myself, if it's not worth standing up and saying it to the entire group, then it's not really worth saying. Yeah. And that was a kind of a rule I had. I just said, look, if you're going to stand, if you're going to talk to the section, then stand up and address the backstand. And it's got to be that important that you're going to stop everything and say it. And so that's, that's my sort of litmus test. Is, is is it worth saying it to everybody and stopping everything for a second or just asking for a second? And if it is, then do it. Because sometimes it is. Sometimes yeah. it is important that you say something. And, it, and, it's, and it's perfectly valid. But it's funny, whenever I've guest-led orchestras, like I love guest leading in, in, uh, in Pittsburgh. Because whenever I get there, I feel home. Yeah. It is the weird, it is the, I mean, I, and I love my orchestra in Dallas. And I love my orchestra in Cincinnati. I love, and of course, the concert club. But for some reason, when I was always in Pittsburgh, it was like, I just sort of stepped in. I felt like I was in my comfy chair. Nice. I just sort of like, I just sat and it's like, you're, oh, you're in your Barca lounger. Right. And you're like, huh, I've been here before. And it was funny. The first time I ever led them, I just felt, huh, I feel like I've been here before, you know? Yeah. I just had a great time. And it was always, the banter was always funny and working with the other principals was hilarious. And we had a great time. It was just fun. Cool. But also because I was laid back. Yeah. You know, it's like, I do my job. I never underdo my job. I always make sure that I say everything that needs to be said, but I'm relaxed about it. A concert mastership is a function. It's just a function. A concert master's <laughs> only group is good as the group that plays behind him or her. Right. It's it's a fact. A concert no, master can be a great soloist, but it doesn't matter. The group, if you don't play well and lead well and and galvanize people behind you, then you're not a good concert master. It's that yeah. simple. No, that's great that you say that. I, I, I've I've never heard that before. I think that's that's really important to to remember for for those you know people listening. You know that are that are wanting to be a concert master. These are these are I mean really important kind of uh, philosophies that that you have to have when you go into this position. Like if you're going to stand up and say something to the, to the section or to to whomever, it better be it better yeah. be bad that bad that you're going to be like you know what let's 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 take a look and you have to be diplomatic about it again right? you you're not going to put somebody down you're not going to make somebody feel bad because what's what does that get you other than no. you know some glares and and nobody nobody wants to nobody's going to you know try to be to do it differently if you're going to make them feel bad right well and as, as a concept you have like when you do say things first of all you have to have tact yeah and but also not just that i always had this another one of my codes was don't say anything to anyone that you wouldn't say in front of everyone. everyone. <laughs> yep. It's that simple. Don't say anything to any person in the orchestra that you wouldn't say addressed to the entire group. Yeah. And, and, and I think that a concert master, I, I would hope that a concert master would be above that kind of reproach that you would say to yourself, okay, like I have to live in a certain way or be, or be accountable in a certain way to the people around me. And if you're not, that's a problem. That's a, I, th I find that's a really big problem. That's a problem. And you, you can't have that kind of ego. You have the, you have to have the kind of ego that says I deserve to be here and that's it. And that's where the ego stops, but you have to have that. You have to have the ego that says I deserve to sit in this chair and do my job. Yeah. Yeah. So let's take a, let's, let's take it now from being on the stage to being 
behind a screen. So mm-hmm. when you're sitting in 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 uh, in an audition, Dallas Symphony audition, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've you've listened to quite a few in your time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Dallas, sure. you you guys do you're one of the few orchestras that have the screen up for all rounds. Is that right? And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I do too. I really do because it really is you're in the minority in 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 that aspect, you know, f- with orchestras in in the United States. It eliminates every type of ism. Yep. Racism, sexism, nepotism, you name it. I and 100% I think that, agree. I couldn't, yep. Wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, great. I think yeah, it's, no, it's, I, it's, a, it's a great thing. So what is it that you're listening for when you're when you're sitting behind the screen uh, and and hearing people for the first time without knowing anything about them, you're you're just seeing them. You're, you're sorry, you're not seeing them. You're just you're listening yeah. to them for the first time. Well, here's the hard part: is that because we can't see anything, because the only thing we have is audio, mm-hmm. right? You're uh, it's like Daredevil. Have you ever seen the com- like they ever heard yeah, the comic sure, book yeah. character Daredevil? Yeah. Okay, so Daredevil's got these heightened awarenesses of everything else because he can't see. Okay, it's exactly the same thing when you're listening to an audition. Because you have only the audio, your awareness is so hyper-tuned into what you're listening to that it's almost unfair to the listener sometimes because you're you're so critical and everything is coming at you only through your ears. Hmm. There's nothing disturbing that. You know, if you go to a concert, you'll see the violinist playing a concert and there's there's the visual, there's all that's going on and there's little distractions that take you away from if you really wanted to hyper you know like just like being a horse with with blinders, blinders on yeah it's so you're you're hyper aware right so first thing i always think of is alex be forgiving <laughs> remember you make mistakes too yeah so that's the first thing is i'm always saying be forgiving for the especially for the first round i'm forgiving uh-huh. i want to listen i want i want to hire somebody remember i think what people when they take auditions they forget that we want to hire somebody yes we're there to hire them. We we just talked to Brinton Smith, and he said exactly the same thing. We're all rooting for you. You know, everyone behind the screen is rooting for those candidates to do well. Yeah, nobody's sitting back there wanting somebody to play badly. Right. First of all, that's it's a horrible feeling because we yeah. know we've been there ourselves. And second of all, we want to hire somebody that day because yeah. we don't want to do this again and Ex- again and again and again. Exactly. So we want to hire you. Okay. So then, what I'm listening for. The basic things I'm listening for. Number, I mean, we're talking now. There's the immutables, like the the, the things that are I would say quantifiable. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, I mean, and it's funny. This I'll tell you for anybody who's listening that that's going to take an audition. There are things that I call the quantifiables, the things that anybody can judge, and people automatically go towards intonation. I have to tell you, even intonation, I think, is second. Mm, that's the first time I've heard that. I would say that the first thing that anybody can judge is rhythm. Yeah. Any person on a committee can go like this. Right. Even the worst person with the worst rhythm in the orchestra can go like this. It's the low hanging fruit, right? Exactly. And so you have, that's like rhythm is a basic. So you've got to practice with a metronome. That's number one. (laughs) Yep. All right. Then, of course, intonation. Yeah. Intonation. But, you know, it's funny because you would even think that intonation would be like above rhythm and then you would think rhythm. But then you would think, well, maybe style. And then next thing, dynamics. Again, something quantifiable. Mm-hmm. If somebody sees a P or if somebody sees an F, it's, it's this thing that registers with certain people on committees. 
So it's 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 like if you have somebody who's playing Mendelssohn Midsummer Night's Dream, and they're playing it at mezzo forte or forte, because it's comfortable. Yeah. And you've got those people on the well, it's piano. Right. So so you're yeah. So so the people that are the the, the panelists that are listening to the audition, they're sitting there with their music, and they see an F, they see a P, they see a forte or a piano, and someone's playing everything in between. They know. They I mean they see that. So what you're saying is like you got to make sure as as somebody who's taking an audition, like the dynamics have to be obvious. Yeah. Right. And that's that's a really difficult thing to do because you have to have your fortes be fortes and your pianos be pianos. And you really have to go to the extremes. There's not there's not kind of you're not faking it. You gotta make sure that your pianos and and pianos like that's hard. That's hard to play piano. It is, but it isn't. And this is what I it's so frustrating as a violin teacher because people don't analyze the violin methodically or Mm. even or or just or or pragmatically. Yeah. They automatically think that that soft means anemic. No, it doesn't. Soft is soft. If people think automatically soft means light, as in feather light. Mm-hmm. Really? No. Soft is a dynamic. Piano is a dynamic. Light or deep is a timbre. Those are two completely different things. You can play Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream with this much bow and be soft, and you can be in the string if you wanted. It's still going to be soft. Yes. Yep. But you're using this much bow. Now, if you want to lose a little bit more bow to get a little air, then maybe you have to take the contact point a little bit more away and use a little bit more bow. Not much, just a little bit more. That'll get you a little bit more airiness. You can move your contact point maybe a couple, like a millimeter, three three millimeters away and get a little bit more bow for that airiness. You can do that. But you can play with this much bow and be in the string and it will still be soft. But people automatically say, this much bow with no pressure. Really? How does that work in physics? Really? How does a string vibrate with no pressure and no bow? Hmm, doesn't. Yes. And so, or automatically they think their left hand is going to be light. Why would that be? If you're not stopping the string, how are you going to get any type of bow control? So what's happened is, is that people have this idea, they have the, a false idea of what it takes to create their dynamic contrasts. And so what they do is they just try to play loud and soft, but they don't know how to really play loudly or softly. And so that's the problem is that they, they take a concept, but they don't actually think out the concept all the way through. I think that's a slight problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, and then I would say, you know, after you get these little things, I mean, of course, the immutables, the, the quantifiables, dynamic, intonation, rhythm, sound, mm. quality of sound, somebody with a beautiful vibrato that blends, somebody who makes colors, yeah. somebody who, perfect example. I remember being in an audition where we had heard Mozart five a thousand times and the adagio would start every time and da, 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 every time he's like, Oh my God. And I just, I just, I was sitting there thinking, please let somebody sing it like an aria. Just let somebody come out and just, and somebody came out and it was this beautiful aria. And my stand partner looked at me and we both smiled. <laughs> and it was like, oh, thank God. Yep. It was like this. I mean, we had this moment where it's like, that's that's what we're listening for. Or like we had a, there was an audition once. Uh, one of our colleagues who's now in St. Louis, unfortunately, well, because her husband was artist is now artistic director in St. Louis. And Jen mm-hmm. was playing her audition. And I remember she played her second round. She started off with Bach. And it was just special. Mm. Like you remember things like that where you think I want to play with that person. 
I want to play chamber music with that person. This is why I wanted you on the podcast because the direct approach that you have with what you say is so clear and so accurate that there's no there's no you know beating around the bush and it's there's no insulting anyone but it is no. you, what are you doing like do this do that and 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 here are the results that you'll have and and i've seen it after you've been to new world with our with our violin fellows you know just they they come out of a lesson and it's it's a completely different thing so so thank you for saying all of that it's unbelievable i ask a lot of our guests like what it is about when you're listening to an audition you know, I, I, people always say, well, I, I, they just had that, that's something, you know, what, you know, they, I, I, we knew that that was a person because they, they, I don't know, I couldn't explain it. They had that something. What is that something? Like, I want, I want a formula for that something so that we could sell it and then make, you know, I don't know, a hundred bucks. You know, it's really funny. <laughs> There's, I've got two sort of definitions of that something. There's like the metaphoric definition. Metaphorical definition is this. I want somebody who if I go like this in my comfy chair, in my mm -hmm. Barca lounger, yeah. the person only makes me move to do this. Lean in to go, wow, that was gorgeous. That's the only time I want to lean in is to do that. It's not to go, eh, right. eh, really? Oh, I feel uncomfortable. No, I never want to feel uncomfortable. I want to feel completely relaxed and just think, wow, this person knows the music. This person just knows this stuff. And the other thing is somebody who you know is comfortable playing like this, this type of repertoire. Uh. You know, you, we've had auditions before where somebody came in and you can tell somebody's personality over four rounds. Somebody can hide the crazy for two rounds. <laughs> you can hide crazy. You can hide egotistical. Yeah. You can, hide, you, can, you can hide narcissist for two rounds. Three or four rounds, that's going to come out. Somewhere it's going to come out and you just have to be open to listening for it, mm -hmm. to listen to that person's personality. But it's funny. This is why sometimes, and I'll talk to the difference between section auditions and concertmaster auditions. Mm -hmm. Section auditions can be more difficult than concertmaster auditions. Concertmaster, you're trying to show individuality in a way. Okay. You're trying to show your personality right. all the time. Yeah, sure. In every single orchestral show, you're trying to make somebody weep, or I'm trying to, to be the character of Strauss's wife in Heldenleben, right. or I'm trying to be Scheherazade weaving a tail, or I'm trying to be, you know, like, you know, there, you're always a personality right. to play. It's in your acting, right? In a section audition, you've got to please everybody all the time. It's really hard, yeah. right? Okay. So I'm not going to say where I was when I heard this audition, nor am I going to say, I'm going to say it was a viola audition and this was, and it's a true story. <laughs> viola auditions. I love it was, them. It was, it was, it was a viola sub audition. I hope it wasn't me. And this was, this was fascinating. We had listened to a couple people and everybody had played very well. Fine. Some people more than others. The last audition was a person. It was one of the best auditions i've ever heard and this is for sub by the way this is mm -hmm. just for substitute not for a place in the orchestra right it was the best audition i'd ever heard on any instrument it was one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard every single excerpt was a gem and yes if you were listening so the person played midsummer night's dream and as i sometimes use the word jiggy like the the woman got a little jiggy with it <laughs> there was a little, it was a little jiggy. Okay. 
but it was magic. Yeah. It was unreal. And I'll never forget. Some of my colleagues were talking about her and they said, well, and, and, and I didn't know who they were talking about at that point. And I said, and, and, and they were, they were saying, well, I don't know if that person will fit in. And, and I said, well, who are you talking about? Maybe the second person. And they were like, no, the last person. I thought, (laughs) are you, I, I said, I would play chamber music with that woman any day, any day. I would be happy. I would record a CD. Uh-huh. Whoever this person is, I love this person. Like, I think she's amazing. Just an amazing musician. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out why she's auditioning for sub. Like, why doesn't she have a job anywhere, anywhere in the world? And it turns out the person like had a, like a, a family member that was living in that city and decided that they wanted like to be able to sub there when they were in town. Okay. It was unbelievable, but it it tells you that for a section audition, you have to dot your I's, cross your T's, make sure everything's in a bow, nice, evenly packaged in a way that doesn't offend anyone. And so you have, and that's hard to do. I mean, the level nowadays is so high. I mean, everyone coming out of school is at, is at a, a completely different level than it was when I was taking auditions. And that's why I'm not taking auditions. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Cause you know, I, I, I didn't have it in me anymore, but you got to wonder, I'm like, like, these are people that are coming into auditioning for a section because that's, that's what's open. Right. Yeah. But they, they're, they're capable of sitting a principal. They're capable there. That's, that's the level that you have. So are you suggesting that people kind of need to be if if it's a section versus principal, they need to be a little bit more reserved. They need to make sure that they're not, they're not, like you said, like showing it, like you know, kind of being over, over the top, or I just don't know, because if you're, you know, you're, if you're auditioning for a principal, you want to, you want to show your personality and you want to have that. But if you're, if you're auditioning for a section, you want to make sure that you're not offending anybody. So where's that balance? I think with concertmaster solos, it's a lot different. If I were playing my concertmaster solos and section audition stuff in the same audition, uh-huh. then I would make sure that my section stuff really was, I dotted my eyes and crossed my T's. Yeah. I would be very careful about my note lengths, about separations between right. notes. I would be uber careful. Whereas if I'm playing Scheherazade, that's my point to like say, this is my stamp on this piece of music. Got it. I'm okay. going to play Brahms one like this in front of you every single time. But as when I'm playing Schumann Scherzo, I'm playing it at 136 to 138, and I'm going to play every single dynamics in the part, and I'm not going to do anything weird, and I'm going to just do everything. Just I'm going to put it. I'm, I'm going to kick the field goal right down the center. And Heldenleben, I can I can put my stamp on it and say, this is me. This is my take on Pauline, his wife, and this is the way I see it. But when it comes to like, yeah, certain like Middleton Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm not gonna get jiggy with it. I'm not. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna right. be I'm gonna be a little yeah. bit more conservative with that. Not that I'm gonna be conservative with my dynamic. No, I'm gonna be conservative. I'm gonna play out Forte. I'm gonna play uh, my huge contrast of piano. But rhythmically, I'm going to be more conservative. Um, I'm going to. I'm not going to color outside the lines. Yeah, you know, talk about your your teaching because again, you are. You, I mean, obviously, you're you're very sought after as as a teacher, and you have a, a, a philosophy of teaching, and you have a like like I said before, you have a way of of saying things about it. Like so, when you're when you're working with with your students in your in 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 your studio or or you're coming to New World or or you're doing wh- wherever you're in Aspen or wherever it is 
these are the you know so these are the kind of things that you're you're pointing out like you need to know what 136 to 138 metronome marking is like the mo at 7 a.m in the morning when you wake up you need to be able to snap your fingers at 136 be able to know yep. exactly what that is so like what are some of the things that you're telling your students while they're preparing for an audition well i think that what happens with a lot of people when they're practicing they don't anticipate nerves mm. they think that they're going to be comfortable like they are in their house yeah that's not what's going to happen there are maybe four people in this world that are that comfortable on stage. Jimmy Ennis, Yo-Yo. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe a few others that are that comfortable that you can say to yourself, like, they're, they just eat the stage up. like they, Or like they, they play like they're having a beer in their living room. Yeah. That's what it's like to them. The, the fight or flight mechanism just doesn't exist. Okay. For the rest of us who are human, <laughs> it's different. And so, you know, I was just talking with, with James about this. We were just sitting and he was playing with us in Dallas and we were having dinner at my place and we were just talking about these types of things about practicing and, and, and how we practice. And we both, it, we both have a very strong opinion that you have to practice assuming nerves. Hmm. The more you know, the more you cope. I mean, if you don't, if I look at my students and say, do you know where you are in the bow? If you don't know where you are in the bow for anything you play at any given time, then you don't know what you're doing. If you don't know what it feels like, what kind of frame are you feeling like when you're in the in half position playing the beginning of Mozart 39 second movement? What does it feel like? What part? What is your contact point when you go from the E flat to the F natural? You have to know these things. What does it feel like to be to get a string to to get to really release the overtones? Where's your arm when you do that? Is it lower? No. Is it higher? How much higher? What across? I mean, you have to know every facet of what's going on. How do you get your tempo? Like how much bow were you using yeah. uh -huh. to get these tempi? And if you don't know these things, you're not going to be able to do it at four in the morning, wake up, take your violin out of nowhere, don't practice, just start playing. Yeah. I think that you have to know, number one, everything you need to know about the excerpts. And I mean to a detail that's ridiculous. Two, you have to be able to know who you are as a person, know your tendencies on stage. That means taking mock auditions. That means mm -hmm. putting yourself under pressure a lot. Yep to see how you react and also using other methods of accountability. I always tell that to my students, use other methods of accountability, whether it's recording yourself like crazy, having playing in front of your friends or doing something like simulating nerves. Like I remember reading Don Green's book about auditions. I, I, I talked to Don Green sure. many times a long time ago. He's an amazing guy, really smart, yeah. incredible ideas. And Don was talking about simulating nerves. And he said, you know, to, if anything as simple as taking a recording device, put it on the other side of the room, do about a minute's worth of jumping jacks, yeah. take your violin, tune, and then play and see how to deal with those, with those, that feeling of <gasps> breathlessness yeah. and being able to control yourself, to be able to, to just basically enact what you wanted to do. Yeah. These are the things that are necessary to win an audition because an audition is all about being consistent over four rounds. Mm -hmm. To show where you are for four rounds in a situation that is inherently abnormal. I mean, it is abnormal to walk on stage for seven to eight minutes. Yep. If you're lucky, seven to eight minutes of time <laughs> sure. in your first couple of rounds to show who you are. I mean, usually you have like, come on, Fritz Chrysler. It was known as like the first five minutes were just pretty bad of a concert. And then he got warmed up and then it was <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't get that time in an audition. 
five, six minutes, you're gone. Yep. So you have to be able to know all of that to be in that sort of zone immediately. Yeah. We, and to make sure that your level only goes from here at your top point to here at your bottom point. Yeah. Never to here. Yeah. So the consistency has got to stay the same. Yep. You know, we've talked to a lot of, a lot of the people about, about taking auditions, dealing with nerves. And that's a big mm-hmm. part of it, you know, is in, in taking beta blockers and things like that. Do you have, I mean, yeah. what, what's your philosophy on that? I mean, like on beta blockers, Yeah, on beta blockers, if you really have that case of a shakes, if you really feel like you have to do that, then do it. I mean, if that's, if that's, if that's something that's insurmountable for you. Right. Well, that's the, yeah. The insurmountable part of it. I mean, for me, the shakes has never been the biggest part of my life. My part, my, I mean, my, my sort of Achilles is my head. I, I'm an overthinker. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's probably, I, mean, I think that's probably a lot of people though. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's getting out of your own head. That's what it was for me actually as well. I didn't have shakes, but it was, you know, I didn't know about beta blockers until way too late in my, in my, in a, you know, I didn't, I don't know if it would have helped or not. Probably not. But um, when I first started, I didn't even know they existed. I, that's the thing. I didn't well, either. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, but nowadays I feel like I feel like people are taking beta blockers just because they're like, well, everyone's doing it, so I have to do it too, kind of a thing. Sure, I mean, and a lot of people do, and and a lot of people in orchestras take them, and especially if you're doing recording sessions or big concerts, a lot of people do it. Yeah, I mean, I think controlling nerves—it's an interesting thing. I have always thought of controlling nerves as the more I know, the less nervous I get. Okay. Yeah. And and so. If you know what your tendencies are and you've already thought them out, like I've already thought them out. I've already thought about like, if I get the shakes here, which is never that much of a big deal for me, honestly, mm-hmm. it's like, but it's, if, if I'm, it happened once in my life where, and it was my first audition that I ever took. And my best friend at the time, Michael Ludwig, who I, my, my oldest son, his name, his middle uh, name is Michael because of Michael oh. Ludwig. Nice. Michael was on the committee. And I was my Philadelphia Orchestra substitute audition. I was probably 19 or 20. And I had not, I, I was told that the first page of Mozart 40th Symphony was on it. And it turns out it was the second page. And I hadn't looked at it. Oh. <laughs> and I went pale and looked at it very closely and nailed it. However, however, uh, I was right after I finished playing, I was so, I think I was so taken up by the whole experience mm-hmm. that I felt the shake start in my toe oh, and no. proceeded to go up the entire right side of my body Oh boy! until the point where I literally could not stop my arm from shaking. And I thought to myself, Oh, please, please let the next excerpt be like Enigma variations or Schumann scherzo or something fast. I turned the page and it was the opening opening of Mendelssohn's Scottish symphony. Uh-huh. And it was the best up bow and down bow staccato I've ever done in my entire (laughs) life. I have no staccato. Yeah. That day I did. Yeah. And I'll never forget Michael just looked at me. He said, What the hell was that? What the hell was that? And I said, I don't know. And he said, Don't ever walk into an audition not knowing every single note they tell you to practice. Yeah. He and he and he bludgeoned me for it. He was like, Alex, he was like, you can't walk in like not knowing the second page. If we say a movement, you learn the movement. So now that's one thing I've always told my students. Every note they ask for, you know it as if it's in your blood. 
they'll say like first movement of Brahms one or, or whatever it is, you know? And so, so you're saying, I mean, there, there are obviously the, the, the excerpts that everybody knows, but even those like you, you, so you focus on those and the other stuff where, you know, like as a violist, we're, we're doing, you know, 19 measures of, of repeated eighth notes, but you still gotta, you still gotta look at them. You still gotta know that you gotta count 19 measures. One thing that bothers me about modern auditions is that I actually have a problem with a lot of the lists that I see these days. Yeah. I mean, you've got quirky lists. Quirky lists are fine. Like if you see like Dr. Atomic or like Harry Potter or something. Okay, quirky Harry lists. Potter's, Harry Potter's a big one lately. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. Have you ever yeah. played Harry Potter? He- it's yes, really I have. Hard. Yes, I played the movie, the Hedwig's theme. Atomic? Yeah. yeah, it's hard. Yep. Dr. Atomic, it's hard. Yep. You know, like, I mean, the hardest thing I've ever seen is probably naive and sentimental music by John Adams. It's one of the hardest pieces I've ever played in my life. Mm-hmm. Makes a Nielsen symphony look like, like, like Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> but the, when I see lists that just have everything in their mother, like every piece is like the whole symphony and it's like 10 different symphonies. And then I always laugh because then the final round is the chamber music round. And I always just, I crack up because I think to myself, the first rounds, all you've got is somebody who can play notes. And now you're expecting them to be able to just whiz through all these notes, play them all perfectly. And now you're expecting them to be great musicians. Yeah. And I believe that James Ennis and Lisa Bacchashvili and Janine Yonsa, I think they have jobs. I think they're already <laughs> there. But I think when you tailor a list like that, I think that that's a mistake. I think that you should have a list that's not tiny, but concise. Know what you want to listen for. Know what kind of musicianship you want to listen for. And you can you don't have to play Schumann Scherzo. You can play the Prokofiev, uh, the the Romeo and Juliet, yeah. the Tybalt. Uh, you know, you can have that as your Scherzo instead. You can have different pieces that this or that that or that to mix it up. You can have Mozart 35 instead of Mozart 39. You can have Beethoven's ninth scherzo rather than the third scherzo. Right. There are lots of different things you can mix and match. But to have full symphonies all the time, I think that's just to scare people off. I, I do think too. That's their, oh, yeah. But what you get, but we know what you get when you do that? You get homogenous orchestras. You get you get people who can play notes and then they wonder why like orchestras are becoming sort of this like every orchestra sounds the same. It's because it's not about finding who you want anymore. It's finding this kind of like, it's it's almost like Billy Ball. You're just sort of, you're yeah. finding somebody who sort of fits like a position. Like you know you can you can improve your stat. Yeah, but yeah, it's not no. a baseball game. It's not about winning. It's not about it's not about who gets the most runs. That's I mean that's st- that's statistics for winning. I mean that's smart for for baseball. It's brilliant for mm-hmm. baseball. Right. But for music, it's not the it's, same thing. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's really that's a really great point. Yeah, because I I have seen I have seen lists that are just yeah, like you know, it's two pages of every single thing you can throw at it, and it's it's what what do you yeah what do you what are you trying to accomplish? You know, what kind of people are you trying to get? I mean, is it's a scare tactic almost? You know, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was uh, first asked to audition for the concertmaster Philadelphia Orchestra. And it was just going to be sonatas, playing sonatas with with Savalish. Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, that'd be amazing. I thought, but I didn't really want to go into a position not having the orchestra behind me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just come in and don't win an audition, that's hard. You have to really, I mean, in, in Dallas, I had to do that. And, and luckily, I had some street cred to go with me. Yeah. 
but to get a group of people who are really great musicians to respect you and they don't really they they didn't vote for you or they didn't you know they didn't you know get to have their stamp we want him that's hard yeah. so i thought to myself i don't i don't want to come into any situation like that and then i said well is there a list that you're going to give other people and they sent me a list that was i can't even describe how long it was <laughs> and i said I don't have time for this. <laughs> like, and, they, and they said, yeah. well, well, you, well, you know, all the music. I said, of course I know all the music and I've played all of it, but there's a difference between knowing all of this music and performing every note of every symphony to a performance level. Sure. Yeah. We're talking 10 to 12 hours of music at a performance level. That's, that's just impossible. That's impossible. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, and it's not worth it. I thought to myself, mm, I'm happy where I am. <laughs> We're good. Yeah. We're good. Thank you. Thank you. Look, Alex, I, I know I know you're super busy and I don't want to keep you um uh, this is super fun. It has been really fun. I can't believe we have, you know, we've spent an hour talking to you already. It's this kind of um unbelievable to me. But I, I think one hundred percent. We need to have you back because I still have a. We, I have a lot of follow up questions with all this. I want to talk more Anytime. about your, your your teaching. I want to talk more about just your, your whole philosophy. Uh, you know, in yeah. So again, we'll put a pin in this conversation. Um, but thank you so much for being here for taking the time. You know, just to kind of talk to everybody about this because it's so important for for our listeners to hear someone like yourself who has reached a really, in my opinion, such a high level, you know, the pinnacle kind of, of you, your career is, is amazing to me. Um, I, I love the things that you say. I love, you know, I mean, obviously I love your playing. I love your teaching. I think you're, you think you're great. And, and I just, you know, can't say enough about you, obviously. So <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks for, for taking the time to be with us. Of course. Really a pleasure. I still have my question, JT. Can I ask oh, my question? Shit. Yeah, your question. I forgot. Hey. I got okay. I got wrapped up. I'm sorry. I, I, have, I have a serious man crush for Alex, so you know. Well, I do too now. <laughs> okay. I'm honored. <laughs> Here's <laughs> the question. You teach at Jacob's school. Huh? When did that change to Jacob's school instead of just the Indiana uh school of music? Was it like in 2005 ish It was like two it was probably it was right after so I would say probably about 2007, 2008, I believe. And okay. when the Jacobs family gave a huge gift to the school, they were incredibly generous. I mean, it was unbelievable, the gift to the school. And it was primarily for our scholarships. And there, but, and so, yeah, that's when it changed. That's incredible because for, for a while, people were saying Jacobs School. And I didn't even know that they were referring to, to IU. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So I see the same thing is happening with University of Miami School of Music. They call it the Frost School now. When JT and I were there, it was right before that donation came in. We were still UM. Yep. Alex is from Miami. Yeah. My parents met at UM. My dad's a guitarist. My mom's a pianist. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. So if you were at IU when it was IU mm -hmm. School of Music, do you write Jacobs on your resume or no? I do, actually. I mean, I, sort of, I, I write... Uh... Linda and Jack Gill professor, IU Jacob School of Music. Yeah, I do know. So, and, and yeah. if you graduated from the school, like in 2000, yeah, I guess you would you say Jacob? I guess you would write now. Yeah, yeah, I guess. All right, because I've been dragging my feet on it. I have been, <laughs> I have been. <laughs> that that was your question. <laughs> that's my question. I told you it was banter. 
I thought I, you were like asking like what's my favorite booze or something. I know. <laughs> like, I, I was, was like, really? I would thought like what's your favorite like razor to shave your head or something. I thought we all yeah, had that connection. Exactly. <laughs> I am not that interesting. That was funny. No, I've got a good story about that though, really quick. So I used to have the hair thing a little bit, you know, all on the sides and yeah, stuff, mm-hmm. and this had this had been pretty much gone. And my music director, Jan Zveda, never he was very Dutch, very blunt. And he walked up to me and he was of course bald. And he walked up to me and he says, Alex, yeah, give up. It's over. <laughs> and he gave me <laughs> and he gave me the razor. Nice. He gave me the clippers as a as a as a Christmas present. <laughs> it was the greatest moment. Like, oh it's over. God. Give up. Here. That's Merry Christmas. <laughs> and that was it. And from then on, that's what it was. That's so funny. Yeah, and I would just want to thank everyone listening and and for subscribing again. You know, let us know if you have uh, any questions. You want to let us know who you want on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Um, it's been uh, it's been great. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. 